earth, ecology, biodiversity, sustainability, environment, animals, indigenous land rights, climate change, regenerative agriculture. The podcast dedicated to these topics and more. Topics that are arguably among the most important issues of our time. The Equilibrium Podcast with your host, Ryan Young. Hi, this is Ryan Young here with Sharif Darwish, who is a plant biologist. And we're going to talk a little bit today about what Sharif knows about plant interactions with fungi. Right. So uh, a lot of people don't really realize that there is these really interesting um, connections that plants have with fungi. Can you give me an example? Definitely. Uh, might help to start off just talking about the long history of the relationship between plants and fungi kind of in total. they You can't talk about either group without talking about the other uh, simply because they both emerged onto terrestrial earth around the same time uh, and it seems all the evidence seems to suggest that neither of them would have survived very well without the other so they've been kind of in cahoots for over 400 million years uh, and we're talking about the beginning of the greening of terrestrial earth this would not have been possible without uh, the cooperation of the fungi both these groups kind of emerging from the seas from an aquatic habitat uh, to try to adapt to the challenges of living on land being, you know, the support gravity This led to, you know, adaptations of wood and cellulose, things like that, that allows plants to stand upright and the challenges of drying out being a big one. Uh, and just the low fertility of, which was the absence of soils at the time. So seaweeds giving rise to the plants and then aquatic fungi moving on to, to more soil, uh, soil-like habitat. So you can picture the plants coming on to, to the land, being really good at photosynthesis so they can take the abundant CO2 in the, that primitive atmosphere, relatively primitive, uh, again, talking over 400 million years ago. So they could make sugars really great, organic compounds, fantastic, but they had really weak root systems that were totally inadequate to acquire nutrients like phosphorus, nitrogen, these kind of things that were kind of embedded in the mineral soils that were prim they weren't yet formed into soils, but that substrate that they were trying to colonize. And the fungi had the exact opposite kind of problems or the exact opposite kind of issues. They were really good at getting things like water, phosphorus and nitrogen because they grow in a very film in this filamentous kind of form you know if you look at a patch of mold it looks kind of cottony and that cottony appearance comes from this hair like growth pattern uh, and that gives them this really large surface to volume ratio that makes them just fantastic absorbers uh, so they were really great at absorbing the trace amounts of these uh, essential nutrients uh, but they can't photosynthesize no fungus has ever learned how to photosynthesize on its own. So they needed organic material. They needed sugars, they needed um, uh, amino acids, things like that, that plants were producing through photosynthesis. So we think that they kind of co-evolved together, uh, cooperating. The first plants being on here would have attracted the fungi to their, to their roots and to their dying parts, being rich in organic material. So the fungi would have been growing towards any area where these primitive plants would uh, would be growing. 
And this led to three kind of different relationships that we still have well represented today. So we can picture a situation where the fungus grows towards the plant and uh, waits till it dies and digests or decomposes the dead plant material. And that tends to be how people, how far people go with their understanding of fungi. They're decomposers. That's what they do. They break down dead organic material and then they make mushrooms out of that stuff. Uh, that's the general you know, knowledge out, uh, out there for, uh, from my experience. Uh, but there are two other associations that happen. Uh, one being parasitism, you know, if you're a fungus, why wait for the plant to die? If we can learn how to just eat the plant while it's still living, great. Good for us. And we still find that, you know, the majority of all plant losses in our agriculture come from fungal diseases not from bacteria or viruses or, or, or even insects. You know, we, we have a lot of our plant losses in terms of disease, I should say. Insects actually do consume more of the biomass, but in terms of disease and pathology, it's the fungi that, that rule. And this goes back to their intimate, you know, emergence with, with plants. Uh, but the third and the most, I find the most kind of inspiring or interesting is this idea of cooperation. So some of the fungi learned how to kind of grow into the roots of these plants, forming this physical interface with the plant cells, the fungi going and exploring the, these primitive soils, gathering up the resources the plant needs, and then at this interface, this fungal plant interface, swapping those, those uh, mineral nutrients for sugars. Uh, and this is called mycorrhizae or a mycorrhizal association. Myco meaning fungus and rhiza meaning root. So fungus root, this fungus root evolved. So this part plant, part fungus structure, uh, that's all about this trade-off, this trade-off of uh, mineral nutrients for organic nutrients. And this was so successful that now 90% of all plant species on earth have this association. And we think most of these uh, actually require these, these symbiotic associations uh, for their healthy survival and the competitive survival in uh, these habitats. So, you know, any kind of, uh, any kind of nutrient-limited ecosystem is going to be uh, dominated by plants with these associations in their roots to this day. So this has been going on for hundreds of millions of years, this kind of trade-off, uh, and has become very specialized to the point where we have plant roots actually changing their morphology to accommodate the, the fungus um, and uh, vice versa. If I had like a gram of soil in my hand that I picked up from the forest mm -hmm. floor, Inside that gram of soil, what, what could there You're be? You're looking at uh, between one and four kilometers of fungal threads. You know, and, and a lot of that, if it's forest floor, like in the Arboretum here in St. Anne, you know, one gram or one cubic uh, centimeter of that soil, you're looking at between one and four kilometers of these fungal threads. And again, you have to picture the surface of these tubes all being this absorptive surface that's uh, both absorbing things from the from the substrate. Typically, it's happening more at the branch, at the tips of all the branches, but they're secreting these enzymes. You know, they don't have mouths or anything. The, the way that they, that they get their nutrition is they absorb it from the environment. But to absorb large molecules, is really difficult. So what they do is they spit out these digestive enzymes into onto their substrate, digest it outside of their bodies, and then absorb the broken down bits. 
so in Quebec, Canada is a fantastic place to to encounter these things. Uh, uh, it's evolved to a point where now uh, very complex, large fungi, uh, mushroom-producing fungi, make this association with almost all of our uh, coniferous trees, uh, tree species in Canada. So because our boreal forests are dominated by this tree type, we find this is a fantastic place for things like bolites, chanterelles, uh, all of those come from this association. They're not mushrooms produced from breaking down plant material. They're mushrooms that are all of their organic mass is coming from photosynthesis from their from their fungal partner. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how the the evolution of that and those kind of associations emerge. That's the picture that we have currently, anyway, in, you know, from uh, from science. Uh, and again, still still reflecting in in the ecosystem dynamics now. And if a, if a forest fire burns hot enough and burns the uh, the fungi in the mm-hmm. soil, then it's very hard for the trees to come back. So yes, sure. exactly. And that's one, what we know now is that, again, Canada being a fantastic place to observe this, or a lot of our forests or boreal forests have this fire cycle. So every so often the forest just burns down. You know, this happens every year. You know, the, we try to combat these forest fires, but they have to happen. If they don't happen, if we prevent them from happening for too long, then what happens is the leaf litter and the branches and just the dead plant material builds up too thick. So when a fire eventually does happen, which is inevitable, there's no way to completely prevent this, uh, it'll burn hotter than it naturally would. Um, And that extra heat or the, the increased intensity will burn the forest floor deeper than it normally would to deep enough that will destroy the the seeds that are stored there and the fungal spores that are uh, and the mycelium that's stored there that would normally participate in quickly regenerating uh, the the next cycle of succession the next successional pattern what are some of the most interesting aspects of that relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and and uh, plants uh, with the mycorrhizal fungi, there's two broad types. There's one that kind of uh, it's hard to see if you pull up a if you pull up a plant, you know, you pull up some clover in your in your yard, you're not going to see it. It's uh, it's too thin. The filaments are too thin, uh, and the spores that are produced are typically inside the roots themselves. So to actually visualize them, you got to stain them in the lab and things like that. Uh, but they're there, uh, and this is the this is the most ancient uh, form of those, and. This provides, again, the way that it impacts plant health isn't just this, you know, giving them the nutrition they need. This makes them more resistant to heat stress, to cold stress, to pollution. Uh, it allows the, the root system to develop more extensively. All of these, these characteristics we're starting to pay attention to and apply to things like uh, revegetation. Our mining activities generates huge amounts of nutrient-poor soil that washes away on the first rain, you know, or, you know, with every rain, you know, you lose all this uh, sediment and get the siltation and things like that. So there's a drive to try to, try to revegetate, bring plants back into these ecosystems. And it's not often very successful. So this awareness that these plants don't do very well without these fungi uh, has led to trying to develop techniques to incorporate the plant along with their fungal partner to increase uh, uh, the success rate of this, uh, these re- revegetation issues. This is this is going to have impact. It's already having impact on the way that we run nurseries. You know, the way that we transplant 
plants from one area to another. They, there's, you know, we know that plants survive transportation stress and repotting, things like that a lot better uh, when they have these associations than in the absence of these associations. So that's, a, that's what we call an endomycorrhizae because the, the fungus is growing kind of embedded within the root tissue itself. And uh, uh, this isn't just, you know, one plant, one fungus. Now, this, this uh, leads to this idea of fungi being, in, back to the idea that I was uh, mentioning, but this idea of fungi being embedded within the ecosystem. And w- the way that, that I would view this is that fungi are essentially the glue of ecosystems. They're, they're what's connecting all of the elements of the ecosystem together. They're closing loops of, uh, of uh, nutrient cycles. So um, without the fungi, wood wouldn't get broken down. The only things that can break down uh, lignin, which is a tough component of wood, is one group of fungi. You know, without these fungi, plant matter would not get broken down and that that those uh, nutrients and energy wouldn't get returned to the to the ecosystem to fuel you know successive plant growth and animal growth and so on just you know feeding back into the food webs with spruce budworm uh out west it's really the fungus that the beetle carries with it that kills the tree it's not the beetle uh directly it's the fungus that this beetle carries in its mouth and then deposits in its beetle nests in the in these spruce trees uh, uh, that kills the tree. And the beetle does this because the beetle can't digest wood. And like I said, there are very few things on earth can break can digest wood. Uh, you know, we can't just go out and take a bite out of a maple tree and get any kind of nutrition from that. And that goes for all the animal kingdom. Any animal that does consume wood, like a termite, does so by virtue of having symbiotic microorganisms like fungi uh, either living within its gut or within its nests to break down this this material. So with the spruce budworm, they're inoculating essentially their nest with this fungus that then grows in the nest, breaking down the wood, develops this lush fungal biomass in, in, in the nest. So when the eggs hatch, they have all this fungal tissue to eat. That's what they're eating. They're not eating the tree. They're eating the, they're eating the fungus. Uh, and then before they leave that nest, the females make sure that they, they store a little pouch of this fungus with them uh, because that's what they're going to use to inoculate their tree when they go lay their eggs in a, in a new tree. So without that fungus, there would be no spruce budworm. Uh, and again, you know, providing another angle, uh, you know, an avenue to, to attempt to control these kind of populations. If a tree over here is lacking a particular mineral that the mycorrhizal fungi might go and grab that mineral far away right, and bring right. it to Right, right, yeah, exactly right. And this is, you know, this is what you were mentioning, you know, about the, this, this glue of the, the ecosystem. This isn't just a, you know, one plant, one fungus. This is the fungus can kind of leapfrog from one plant to another and physically connect the root systems, the root networks, the absorptive networks of these plants together. And some people refer to this as the wood wide web, you know, it's a, the Mother Nature's in, original internet, this network of mycelium, which is the filaments of fungus that extend throughout the soil in, in an ecosystem, physically linking all of the, the plant components there. And yeah, just like you just like you said, you know, we know now that you know one fungus that's connecting several trees together can reallocate these resources uh, to different uh, to different plants. Uh, and so, if one fungus prefers one species of tree, it can allocate resources to a young sapling that may be trying to get ahead to occupy and recently opened up a hole in the canopy. 
so in that way, the fungus is having a direct role in, in the plant populations and uh, in forest ecosystems. Because I don't know if you saw Avatar, but... Uh, the, this, I haven't actually hit it. Because this is hinted at in Avatar. Oh, yeah? The, an underground network in the tr- uh, root system of trees where they're all communicating with each other. Right, yeah. And this is, I mean, this that's just total like plagiarism from, from nature. You know, what uh, what people that have some know knowledge of uh, of fungi would you know would definitely identify that right away as as uh, taken from mycorrhizae for sure and then this is you know the it's more than just nutrients that's flowing there it's also like chemical cues you know they, they can you know they can uh, give a heads up to plants we, we think you know if there's an infection in one uh, one plant they may be able to strengthen essentially the um, not it's not truly an immune system but the defenses of those plants uh, so again the these fungi having more of an impact than just uh, nutrient allocation. They're also making them resistant to disease and we know now uh, to man-made pollution. Is there anybody who's on the cusp of this kind of research? Paul Stamets out west is, uh, I mean, he's he's one guy that, I mean, he has a lifelong commitment to studying this kind of stuff. Uh, so Paul Stamets, he, he started this company called Fungi Perfecti uh, out west in uh, in Washington. And he started this as a mushroom cultivation farm. He's a mushroom farm. He, so he's not a PhD in no, not that. In, I'm I'm not sure if he's been given honorary PhDs, and if not now, then in his future. I'd I'd guess uh, uh, there's a great TED talk. If anybody knows the the TED I've talks, seen it, yeah. yeah. Then uh, just look for Paul Stamets talk, and he gives you about a 20 minute uh, roller coaster kind of overview of, you know, how and how mushrooms can help save the world, and that's it. That's his uh, that's his belief, and he considers himself a Michael warrior, this like fungal warrior trying to bring attention uh, to what how fungi can can help us out of our most pressing environmental problems right now. Um, so he started this company growing mushrooms, but also had a lot of interest in He's very ecologically minded to sustainable practices and, you know, developing strains of, or not developing, but uh, recognizing strains of, uh, of mushroom producing fungi uh, that can break down a wide variety of, of organic substrates. So what do we do with corn uh, after we're corn cobs after we take off the kernels? You know, are you going to throw them away or burn them or something like that? Well, why don't you use them as fuel to grow a cash crop of oyster mushrooms? You know, you go to IGA, you spend $10 a pound for oyster mushrooms. You can grow them straight off of corn cobs. You don't need any really anything else other than, you know, some water in the location to, to do this. Uh, and transforming that, that unpalatable cob into a very nutritious, protein-rich mushroom. Mm. So he's interested in the in the recycling capacities of fungi uh, and recognizing their nat- that natural role of them in ecosystems and then applying that to agricultural systems. So having a zero waste agricultural system where any organic material it could be leaves and stems from soybeans, it could be corn cobs, it could be anything, any any organic material, any carbon based material, fungi are the are excellent at uh, at uh, breaking that stuff down like plant-based organic material because again this goes back to their history with plants evolving with them and evolving these strategies to take advantage of the organic material in plants cellulose lignin so not just plant waste which is even it sounds strange to say plant waste what is plant waste 
doesn't make sense that leaves would be considered waste, but in fact, we do. We consider them waste. We rake our leaves and we put them in orange bags and <laughs> we throw them in a landfill. It's totally messed up <laughs> to think that, you know, there are hungry fungi waiting to, to transform that into delicious mycelium that will then be harvested by insects and those insects going carrying the spores to other locations and, and attracting birds and all, you know, again, being... Uh, now we think uh, to to talk about that kind of um, that kind of role in food web dynamics, it might be good to talk about another study that Paul Stamets did uh, applying the ability of fungi to break down really tough organic materials to breaking down uh, things that we or organic what we consider organic pollution like oil uh, oil pollution gasoline. Uh, things like PVC even, uh, certain plastics, um, uh, all of that, he's, we're starting to realize that this, certain fungi are really good at breaking that stuff down. We don't need to just throw it in, the, in a, a landfill. And it's not, it doesn't have to be uh, undegraded for thousands of years. We can purposefully apply fungi uh, in conscious ways to break this stuff down. So there was a competition that they entered uh, and again, this is just, this is, this is, I'm just uh, relaying what uh, Paul Stamets and his team did. They entered this competition that was a bioremediation competition. So bioremediation is just using any kind of life, oftentimes bacteria, to try to break down uh, or remediate uh, polluted sites. So they said, here's an old truck lot where we parked trucks for a long time. And uh, so the soil is totally soaked with oil and gasoline. It's just nasty filled with all this organic pollutant pollution uh, uh, and try whoever can clean this stuff up the best you know will win this grant uh, and uh, or, or win this award and so Paul Stamets and his team uh, introduced oyster oyster mushrooms you know again these are mushrooms that you can find at the grocery store now and uh, they're absolutely delicious uh, but they're also really excellent at breaking down tough organic material so they introduced this fungus into these piles of uh, oil-soaked soil and then along with some uh, some straw uh, and sawdust to give the fungus something to to eat while uh, it was they hope breaking down this uh, this oil and gasoline uh, watered it down covered it with a tarp and the other team you know the other groups that were kind of competing some of them were adding just chemicals to try to encourage certain growth and others were adding certain bacteria uh, and after something like eight weeks, I think it was, you know, they went back to these piles and they saw most of them were completely unremarkable and still stank like oil and gas. And when they lifted their tarp off, not only was the soil a lot lighter, uh, not only had 80% of the organic pollutants been broken down, but there were mushrooms almost a foot in diameter actually sprouting off of this <laughs> polluted soil analyzing the mushrooms they found no trace of these pollutant pollutants in these in these mushrooms they'd actually broken the stuff down to carbon dioxide and water uh, so this was by far the most successful uh, in that particular example and his sense to try to develop a more uh, more application for this stuff so it's recognizing that any you know or if, if it's if it's organic if it's made of carbon then fungi are the best contenders for breaking that down as again in in ecosystems you know often we associate bacteria with breaking down animal and like dead animal carcasses things like that uh, but when it comes to breaking down plant biomass the fungi rule 
it is still a, an area of study constantly expanding, and there's so few people really studying it. There's so few mycologists out there. Right. How much do we not know, do you think? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, this comes full circle back to this, you know, what gets a lot of people into fungi at the beginning. I know it was the case for, for myself in, you know, grade nine or 10, you know, when I was 15 or so started in starting to get interested in this stuff. It was the, it was that otherness The you, you think that you just found something so profound that no one else cares about that. Uh, you just can't believe it. Yeah. And I still can't believe it. You know, it's 15 years later and I, I still absolutely cannot believe the, you know, the, the neglect of, uh, of this, uh, of this group, you know, and even at uh, most university like general biology courses, you may touch on them for a lecture, but, uh, that's about it, you know, whereas you'll cover plants and animals, animals especially for, uh, for long, uh, uh, for a lot longer. Um, in terms of, just to give you an idea about species diversity itself, uh, it's estimated by mycologists that we've discovered maybe 10%, 7 to 10% of all fungi that exist on Earth, we think that we've named. That's about 100,000. So 100,000 we've named and classified. That leaves, you know, we think that there's about a million out there. Some people put it, you know, much higher than that, you know, but it's typically given estimates between a million and a million and a half. And this comes from just estimates of how many new species do we find when we go into a previously unexplored habitat and just unexplored in terms of the fungal biomass. Um, so you can go down, uh, Bryce Kendrick is a Canadian mycologist. He wrote a book called The Fifth Kingdom uh, that's used for a lot of intro mycology classes uh, where they exist. Um, and... He talked about him and a researcher going down to Cuba and they were just looking at the leaf litter, just uh, what was digesting the leaves in this Cuban rainforest. And they discovered 40 new species of fungi, uh, you know, in just this one study, in just this one location. This is totally neglected. Anytime that we, we go down and take species diversity surveys and, you know, rainforest, any kind of ecosystem in order to use to justify either preserving these ecosystems or not, fungi are never included with this, uh, which is really astounding when you think this is where we get our antibiotics you know penicillin revolutionized medicine changed the changed our relationship with infectious disease uh, cyclosporin revolutionized organ transplantation the greatest immunosuppressant drug uh, that's out there that's safest for the human body is from a mold isolated from the soil and forest you know all these things are out there waiting to to be discovered but won't be if we destroy the habitats that they that they evolved in uh, and existed the reason why i guess i get to so interested in in fungi originally because no one talked about them in biology class in high school no one talked about them uh in university no one talked about them uh you know these these things are are totally near totally neglected except for certain kind of subcultures which are very passionate about this stuff uh, but when you actually realize their place in the scheme of life, uh, you quickly learn and realize that we would be dead without these things. If fungi disappeared today, it would be in no time before all the animals and most of the plants would, that we know uh, would disappear. And um, one of the things that draws a lot of people, including myself, to this fascination with the fungi is their otherness. You know, the, when we look at plants, we walk outside, we see the plants everywhere. Plants are very different from animals, very different from us. So, you know, we have a, kind of a bit of a strange relationship with plants, but they're there. They're present. They present themselves to us. We work with them. We hold them in our hands almost daily. Uh, we wear them, things like that. But the fungi, they don't present themselves to us and 
and have had a totally different kind of impact on the history of humanity and our, our association with them. They seemingly pop out of nowhere overnight. You know, the mushroom is the only real physical manifestation of the fungi that we encounter. Uh, and these can appear literally overnight. You know, some of these mushrooms can grow from nothing to, you know, 15 centimeters tall in a matter of two hours. Uh, what the, This totally confounded people for a long time to the point where, you know, the mythologies or, or previous understanding through history was, you know, these things, fungi are superfluous moisture. They're, they're not even an organism. You know, we can't find any seeds. We can't find any eggs or anything like that uh, because we just didn't have the technology to observe the, their spores. We didn't have magnification or microscopes to, to be aware that they produce these microscopic spores for their dispersal reproduction. No one really knew what these things were, where they came from, and this is partly because their actual bodies, you know, the, the body of the fungus, the, the mushroom just being what we call the fruit body, the reproductive organ, uh, is what's visible, but the actual body of the fungus, which can be hundreds of kilometers uh, wide. You know, the largest organism on Earth is a fungus growing in Washington State, about the size of a thousand football fields, has been going strong for about 1,500 years. Uh, but all of that body is, is, is buried in the ecosystem. It's kind of acting like a glue within the ecosystem uh, and only presents itself again as sporadic clusters of mushrooms here and there. Because they don't present themselves to us, we have kind of a weird relationship with them, especially in the West and kind of Anglo-Saxon heritage. We have what uh, has been called by a man, Gordon Wasson, uh, the middle part of the 20th century is a mycophobic culture. You know, when you ask a lot of people on the street around here, what do you think about my, or I'm really into fungi, what do you think about that? And they kind of look at you strange, and, Ugh, and you're into molds, and yeah, this is the stuff that grows between your toes, and when my shoes are rotten, whatever, walking in the lake. But other cultures have developed a you know, different attitude to them, what uh, this man Gordon Wasson and, and his wife Valentina termed uh, mycophilic culture or mycophiles and I would consider myself a mycophile and these are people that absolutely love fungi especially mushrooms you know people that go out foraging for mushrooms collect wild mushrooms like cooking with them and, and so on uh, and these are primarily like Asian cultures Eastern European cultures like Slovakian cultures um, if you go over there you'll find a very different uh, history and the main the the kind of the the central book outlining these kind of histories and relationships was by the, the this couple, Gordon and Valentina Wasson, uh, in the 50s, uh, called Mushrooms of Russia and History, uh, outlining the, the mythology of, of fungi and uh, uh, their impact on our storytelling and, uh, and even uh, religious practices. And this book is criminally unavailable. They've published about 500 copies of it in total. And they're really into this kind of glorious binding and so they made these just beautiful beautiful volumes that cost them an arm and a leg to publish and so they only made 500 because they had, so it was a bit of an elitist move on on their part uh but it's never been republished uh and so there's only these 500 and some odd copies uh in existence you look online they're you know three thousand dollars if one ever becomes available secondhand uh but mcgill university uh has a copy in the rare books division um, and very very interesting read and just the language that this man's wife who is Russian uh, 
talks, the way she talks about fungi is very, very different than the way uh, you read about it in uh, more Western European histories. Talking about fungi as the foul fungus and this, you know, the evil toadstools and things like that. Uh, in Russia, you find, you know, songs and praises. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we're going to have to get to a point, especially with the emergence of, cons of uh, conservation movements and environmentalism, we're going to have to come to terms with our relationship, not just with mushrooms as food and fun, but uh, as fungi in general, including the yeasts and molds and all of that, reevaluate a relationship with that uh, and understand what they can uh, teach us about taking care of the environment uh, and how to manage our human systems a lot better. Um, so I think that uh, the tide is starting to change and there will be, you know, in our lifetime, uh, a growing interest. And I'm hoping that you know, in the next uh, few decades, there'll be um, uh, kind of a uh, shoving aside of our mycophobic ways and uh, we start embracing a more mycophilic uh, uh, attitude towards fungi. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for speaking to us My today. absolute pleasure. <laughs> thanks for having me, Ron. Okay, take care. Thank you. I am the host and producer of Equilibrium, a radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, and I am fascinated by ecology and the human-animal relationship, and I want to inform you, the listener. If you're an environmental activist, scientist, or just somebody that is concerned about the future health of the planet's ecology, this is a podcast for you, the Equilibrium Podcast with your host, Ryan Young.